All right, guys, good evening. I'm very excited to be with you tonight. I just realized this podium is not going to be nearly large enough. That's okay. Um, I, I want to open us uh, in prayer. Paul, your prayer is great. Um, I always think it's weird after the worship guy prays for the guy who's talking to come up and pray too. Like, hey, thanks, Mr. But, uh, but I, I do want to pray for a specific. Before I say that, though, I, I just want to say this. Um, some of you are here because the church doors are open, and that's just kind of the kind of person that you are. As pastors, we love you kind of people. Um, but then some of you guys are here because working through this cults and other religions and things like that is very pertinent to you. Um, there are things that have gone on in your past or there are relationships that you have now where this is a very, very big thing. Some of you guys are, are just wanting to be prepared for what's coming. What I want to mention tonight, and, and I want to pray for us a little bit differently tonight, is this. When it comes to Mormons, when it comes to Jehovah's Witness, when it comes to Islam or anything else, the high, high, high likelihood is that none of you are in that cult or other religion. You're here. We know most of you. I know your faces. When it comes to religious pluralism, the same can't be said. And I think you'll see what I'm, what I'm talking about as we dig into this. Religious pluralism is very much like a virus in the church. It's not something that stays on the outside of the church, and the church figures out, okay, how are we going to deal with this philosophy? How are we going to manage this? It is very much something that is inside the church. And to be very honest with you, it would be astounding if there were not a, a very large handful of people in this room that didn't have traipses of that in their own doctrine and theology. It, it is the air that we breathe. It is the culture that we live in, and it does not have lines of demarcation like Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Islam, Buddha, Taoism, and things like that. So that's kind of how I want to pray for us. I want us to look at this with different eyes, not so much as an outsider looking at this, this form of religion or philosophy and saying, mm, how do I deal with that? But looking at it and looking in our own hearts and seeing if there are areas where we are vulnerable, have been vulnerable, or even culpable for believing a lie that has caused us to not believe the full truth of God's word. So let's, let's pray for that, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this evening. Above everything else, we want to thank you for your son. We want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the body that you have built, that we would be mutually convicted and encouraged, uplifted, ultimately being built into the body of Christ, your bride without wrinkle or blemish or any imperfection. And yet, while we seek to attain that, we realize that on this side of heaven, our sanctification never reaches its full and complete state. And so, Father, we push in and we press hard, recognizing that our own growth has ramifications for the unsaved around us. It's not just that we would have a better day or that we would be a stronger Christian. It's that our ability, our influence, our fragrance in our culture is impacted by whether or not we are growing in the gospel. And when we are, Father, the, the impact that can be had for your kingdom through your spirit in your people is incredible. And so as we talk about religious pluralism, I know this. I know that for the students in this room, they have classmates who have bought into this hook, line, and sinker. I know that for those who, who are in careers, they have co-workers and bosses who have bought into this. Father, for all of us, we have, I, I would imagine, someone in our family, whether it's immediate or extended, who has bought into this. And we can treat it like an innocuous thing as though it won't destroy us. And yet the truth is that if we are not on the side of God against our sin, we are hopeless. So Father, may we see you for who you are. 
Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. And so we pray that in your name tonight. And everybody said, amen. All right, guys, let's get started. Religious pluralism is what we're going to be talking about. And and that's kind of a funny word. Uh, It's got all sorts of other catchphrases and things. It it can be a pluralistic philosophy. It can be, um, good gracious, I I mean, there's a million different things. The way that we lump it together as a church is religious pluralism, and we'll break down exactly what that means. What I want to say, though, is this. The danger of religious pluralism is very different Because if anyone in your life has ever, I'm trying to think, when I was early in youth ministry, I got a phone call from a mom, and that mom said, hey, Will, what can you tell me about the Church of Latter-day Saints? I said, well, okay, we can sit down and we can talk. And she said, well, let me tell you why. Because I had a father who died, and I know for a fact he didn't know God, but they give me the opportunity to pray for him now and to be baptized on his behalf so that even if he is in hell right now, he could go to heaven. What are your thoughts on that? You see, to us, we're like, wow, that's kind of weird that you would buy into that. But if you had a husband who died, that you were very convinced there was a heaven or a hell, that would be a very attractive philosophy to you. Now, now when it comes to everything else, you have to buy into something. For Islam, you have to buy into Muhammad. For, um, For Buddha, you have to buy into those teachings. For Christianity, you have to buy into Christ, so to speak. But when it comes to religious pluralism, we can go all the way back to Genesis. And when the serpent sneaks out and he says, did God really say? From that moment on, religious pluralism was our default nature. The fact that we could say who God was or who he wasn't. The fact that we could have a role to play in who our God was built within us, the very idol factory that we still wrestle with. And it was from that point on that this has been a problem. This is not new. Paul dealt with this. So the first thing that we need to ask ourselves... Oh, heads up, Brandon. I got nothing. Give me the first click and see if it... Yep, okay, I'm good. The first question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Does the truth really matter? And everybody would say, yeah, right? Okay, because you know that's the right answer and you're in the church, okay? But let me explain what I mean. When you walk into a room and there's a lamp that's broken, there's a dog on one side of the room and your four-year-old on the other, and you say, who broke the lamp? Does the truth matter? Absolutely, right? You need to know whether to chalk it up to all right, we shouldn't let the dog in. He bumped the table and the lamp broke. Poor Aunt Georgette's lamp, right? Or you need to look at the four-year-old, and when he says, no, it wasn't me, you want to know the truth because it matters, right? The consequences of knowing the truth as they grow increase the liability for us knowing what is true. So step it up. Is it important for us to know what's true? Yeah, everybody say, yeah, that's true. Well, what about when a a man stands here and says to a woman, I commit myself to you and to you alone for the rest of my days. Is it important that what he says ring true? Would we say it's more important than a lamp? Absolutely. Why? Because the consequence of that broken truth has much bigger implications. So on one hand, any lie is condemnable by God because God is true. Everybody would agree. On the other hand, on this side of eternity, there are consequences that change. So does the truth really matter? Yes, and it matters bigger as far as the consequences go. So if I ask you, 
Is there a God? Does he really exist? Is there a heaven and a hell? Is there one way to him or multiple ways to him? We should all agree that that is vastly more important than a lamp. We would all agree that that is vastly more important than a marriage. Not that that's not important. Because the consequence is the soul of a person eternally in condemnation or in paradise with God. So does truth really matter? Yeah, absolutely. Here's what, here's what Paul had to say about it. Now, he's talking to the Corinthians, and I want you to realize this is not a new thing for us. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, other than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's coming to them and he's busting their chops for this. Hearing something else and being able to say, you know what, that does sound pretty good. That doesn't sound that bad. I mean, I mean maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a little bit different than, than what I originally thought this said, but now that I can add this nuanced perspective that is so tolerant and loving, well, now I, I, I can accept it readily enough. And Paul puts his finger right into their chest. So, so here's my hope for tonight. And, and the reality of it is dealing with religious pluralism and responding to it, that's like a, a seminary course. And we've only got till 9 o'clock. And so... I don't know. I'll just spend. I'm actually, I'm, I'm getting, my wife is right there, and this is not Sunday morning. So as soon as 7.20 hits, she's going to be up being like, we got three kids. It's bedtime. So y'all are, in, y'all are in real good shape as far as that goes. But here's what I'd like for us to do. I want us to understand what the pluralist position is. All right? You bump into, I don't even have to say you bump into somebody. You're going to stand next to somebody who is a religious pluralist, even if they can't describe themselves that way before Saturday. It's going to happen, all right? If you go to Wendy's, it's going to happen. If you go to Walmart, wow, it's definitely going to happen, okay? Not because there's anything wrong with working or going to Walmart. There's a lot of people. Then I want us to understand the biblical position, then respond to the objections, and to be honest with one, two, three, three. Brandon, come on, man, get your act together. All right. It's on me. And then finally, I want us to commend Christ. We respond to objections and we commend Christ. And and as with anything else, I I think it's important to mention, it is not our goal to win an argument. It is our goal by the grace of God to display Christ in such a way that a soul is one for the gospel. So here's what we have as far as the pluralist position. Here's basically how it goes. The core beliefs break out like this. And, And you can give more than three, but these are kind of the three big ones. One, all religions are equally salvific, which is a really cool word for saying that multiple paths lead to God. They're equally salvific. The salvation that you can get through Christ is legitimate and it's good. It's the same as Muhammad. It's the same as if you're a Mormon. It's the same as if you're a good moral person or whatever else it is. They're all equally salvific. There is no greater level. There is no better stance. They're all good. This is where we get this illustration from. The mountain of which God sits on top. And the illustration typically goes from those who are explaining their tolerant position that all of us are on a path and we may all take a different path. But if we are seeking God who is at the top of the mountain, we will all eventually get there even though our paths may be different. doesn't matter if you're a Christian, Hindu, Islam, or fill in the blank. We will all eventually end up there. Secondly, 
They have a common core. All religions have a common core. And this is where you hear, hear people say something like, well, no, I think it's great that you're a Christian. It's just, I seek God this way. We, we all have very common beliefs. I mean, look at the Eightfold Path. Check out the Five Pillars. Look at the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of similarities there, all right? So, so there's really a common core. And then finally, the argument that religion only matters in areas of lifestyle, to which they would say, and, and this kind of tacks in with the first one, we're all going to get there anyway. The, the point of your religion is to live a loving, selfless life where you're considered more about others than you are about yourself. It's about being humble. It's about being pure, etc. and so on. And different religions define those things differently. Now, here is where I wish we could break into small groups and talk for a long time, but we don't have time to do this. I just want to give you some of the major arguments that they have. This should start having things fly up in your head. Many of us, for me, when I read this, I hear my own family members that I'm going to see at Thanksgiving. Okay. And, and this is what I'm going to hear from them if I'm bold enough to proclaim Christ other than just saying the blessing. One, all religions teach basically the same thing. They would argue that. They would argue that all religions are fallible because they come from men. Doesn't matter which man it is, it's a man. Okay, your Bible was written by a man. You can talk to me about the inspiration, but it was penned by a man. We can't know with certainty the truth about God and salvation. He's too big, we're too small. If he exists indeed, there's no way that we can know with certainty the truth about God and salvation. This is huge. There can't possibly be only one way to God. How narrow-minded of you. How arrogant of you. Religious beliefs are culturally relative. If you had been born in China, if you had been born in India, you would have a completely different point of view. So don't tell me while we're sitting here eating pancakes that your religious belief has nothing to do with your cultural affections. Now, as you're hearing these, you should, you should begin realizing these are good arguments. These are things that cause us to scratch our heads because we don't usually insert ourselves into these discussions. Somebody walks up to you and says... Well, yeah, maybe, maybe God is good and maybe Christ is the way, but you know you only believe that because you were born in the Bible Belt. You know, like you realize that, right? Religious beliefs are culturally relative. Christians are intolerant and hateful for making exclusive claims. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. And finally, and again, the list could go on and on, and we could go through answering these. It would just take all night. What about those who have never heard about Christ? If the God of the Bible is true, what about those who have never heard about Christ? Tell me where that's fair. And so this is where this comes from. Anybody seen this bumper sticker? I hate this bumper sticker. Hate, hate. And I think, I think it came out in 2004 or something like that. One of my buddies got me the shirt, like not the Christian version. He just got me the coexist shirt. And he's like, <laughs> what are you going to do, right? And, and, and there's something about seeing that that makes me want to tap him a little. Like, oh, my bad. I guess while we're exchanging insurance, we should talk about the fact that you need eternal insurance. So the, the picture at the top, I don't know if you can recognize who that is. That's Bono from U2. 
He is potentially credited for this movement coming out of the coexist tolerance bumper stickers where different religions or philosophies are represented by their symbols. Now, the reason that I've thrown percentages up on this is because they did research. This should really make you sad, upset, angry, worrisome, something. You shouldn't feel the same after I say this. They did some research. Uh, It was part Notre Dame. It was part Harvard. And of course, you can always look, well, how'd you phrase the question? How'd you just hear me out? They asked evangelicals who are 35 years and under if they believed that non-Christians would go to heaven. And 66% said yes. Now, don't you understand what I'm saying? Evangelicals, okay, who are under the age of 35, when asked the question, do non-Christians go to heaven? And a vast majority said yes. 34% or so said no. Do you know what's really interesting? They asked people 65 and over, and the numbers flopped. So people who grew up a generation or two ago, on one hand, still a third of them think you can go to heaven and not know Christ. A third. And those aren't just people on the street. Those are people who are claiming to be evangelical Christians. But what is scarier to me is what has happened in 30 years that another third of our Christians are willing to say, yeah, go. And I can give you my opinions, but I'll tell you this, that when, when the homosexual agenda got pushed as hard, as, you can't even turn on the TV today without that being an agenda on a general sitcom. When all of the typical pillars that our community had been built on. Now, remember, this isn't new. Paul dealt with this. When all of those things started being questioned and we started talking you know, like, do you see what I'm saying? Kind of with this neat interrogative tone where I'm not really making a statement. I'm just kind of saying, I think you should check out Jesus, you know? Don't you think? Like when that started working its way into culture and people stopped making declarative sentences that said, this is and this is not And there is not a gap between the two. There is no gray in between. When that started weaving its way into culture and it was swallowed, that is what we got. And so this is why I say we need to pray for our own hearts. We need to pray for our own children, not just those who go to a different church, synagogue, temple, etc. Because this is very much in the church. And you can, you can see why it's attractive. So what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, let me tell you what Jesus says about it. The Bible says tons of things about it. Let me just give you a couple of things that Jesus said. Not that red letter is more important than black. It is not. It is all the inspired word of God. But in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Take your mountain, crumble it up. I'm the only way. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Very exclusive, very narrow-minded, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with being narrow if it's true. If you don't eat food, you're going to shrivel up and die. This is one of Tim Keller's arguments. If you don't eat food, you're going to shrivel up and die. Am I being narrow-minded? No, it just happens to be true. And you cannot eat and tell me how 
narrow-minded I am and I'll watch you shrivel up and die. But it's a much bigger thing when we talk about the things of the Spirit and we say, if you don't know Christ, your soul will shrivel up and die. Well, you're being narrow-minded. Yeah, it's the truth. It is narrow. Narrow is the path and few are those who enter through it. Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me, Christ speaking, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's an awesome thing, but in a minute when we start talking about how do we deal with people in our lives who are pluralist, please don't forget this. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him... Our, our prayer and our hope is that God would reveal himself, not that our argument would be airtight. Our, our hope is that people would see Christ through not just the, the argument that we have, but the manner in which we have. I think it's Proverbs 18.9 or 19.8, it's something like that, that, that talks about how a brother offended is harder to, to overcome than a well-walled city. Let the gospel be offensive, not your approach. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is not exclusive. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And I wish I could read this whole chapter to you. John 18, he's just healed a blind man who was about 40 years old. He'd been blind since birth. And they start asking him, how'd you do this? Tell us about this authority. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I am. I'm the only way that you don't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And they push him and they press him. And I wish that I had time to read this whole thing to you because he basically breaks down for them religious pluralism and them saying, how can you say you're the way? You're the one saying it. What's your proof? Who's here to back you up? And Jesus says, Well, in our law, it requires two people. Let me give you two, me and my father. How's that sound? That's my version, but that's what he says. And they walk away. And and the Bible says they walk away because it wasn't time yet for Jesus to be be, uh, taken captive. You need to write this down if you're a note taker. If you're not a note taker, you need to take a picture on your phone or you need to just burn this into into your mind. Doesn't matter to me what other religion it is whether it's religious pluralism or any litany of other, here is where Christianity stands apart. Here is where Christ stands apart. Everybody else, Muhammad says, come and do this. Just Smith, come and do this. Taoism or whatever it is, do these things. Jesus says, I'm coming to you. That's the difference. In every other religion, it's man saying, I got to get up this mountain I got to get up to God. But in Christianity, God says, I am coming to you. And that is what we celebrate in a month or two around Christmas. The fact that God came to us. The problem is that this sounds really good. It sounds great. Everybody can do their own thing. We'll all smile, shake hands, say la-di-da, and we won't have any more conflict. We won't have any more war. We won't have any more awkwardness. I'll be able to date who I want, right? Like all of these little problems just fizzle away. It sounds great, but in reality, it is a nightmare, and I do not use that term lightly. I will explain to you why I think it's a nightmare. Sure, it's charitable and all of these other things, but it is a nightmare. And here's the problem. 
When it comes to tolerance or anything else, Christianity looks at Christ and he says he's our savior. Judaism looks at him and says he's a false prophet. And Islam looks at him and says he's a prophet. And then everybody wants to get together and say, you're right, you're right, and you're right. When really all you're saying is, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot, I'm an idiot. It just doesn't make sense. If my kids, well, in this case, it's my wife. If my kid's teacher, all right, we'll go to Thad. Thad's still in preschool. If, if Thaddeus' teacher tells him, hey, Thad, we're going to do our math today. And today, one plus one is two. But tomorrow, one plus one is not two. And then the next day, it'll be two again. But then on Friday, it's not two. Uh, at some point, I'm going to go up to that teacher. I'm going to say, you need to stop talking to my kid. You're confusing him. And he's easily confused. He's young. You're confusing me. And I feel like you need help. Right? Like there's a... I, I'm pitying you in a sense. And so the position that society would say is the enlightened position very quickly becomes the pitiable position when you make them state what they actually are saying. This is called the law of non-contradiction. And we can do that another time. Instead, I'm going to tell you a story about that. Our default nature is to accept what we want to believe. That's your default, okay? That, that is your non-redeemed position to accept what we want to believe. So it was either yesterday or the day before. Their birthday's coming up this weekend. We were driving in the car, and I'm becoming an older, cornier father, which I think is maybe a good, healthy thing. Um, and so Thad was talking about his birthday, and of course I said, oh, Thad, about your birthday, we had to cancel it, right? Because I'm a good, corny dad. He's like, Daddy, that's not true. And I said, no, we, we had to cancel your birthday. I'm so sorry about that. He said, Daddy, that's not true. And then Karen Ann said, don't worry, Thad, you're having your birthday. And I seized it in that moment because I know I was teaching on this. I love it when God does that. I said, Thad, who do you believe, me or Mom? He said, well, I believe Mom. I said, what if I told you we're definitely having your birthday, it's going to be awesome, but Mom said we had to cancel it. Who are you going to believe then? He said, well, I believe you. And I'm like, there it is. Like, that's it. That's the whole thing. And, and it's not like we grow out of it. We just try to make it look nicer. We try to make it look more sophisticated when all it is that our default nature wants to do is say, that sounds good. I'll go with that. That sounds good. I'll go with that. And the gospel is offensive. The gospel says you're not good enough. You can't climb the mountain. You, you better be praising God that he sent his son down a mountain to you. But it's much easier to accept, well, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but this is much more appealing to me. That's our default nature. That, that is what we are dealing with. An article came out. Um, this is on the Gospel Coalition website. It's written by a guy named Paul Rezha. And um, it's called, If All Religions Are True, Then God Is Cruel. And it's a very short article. And he takes this illustration. Have y'all heard the illustration of the, the, um, the train bridge operator and his son? Have y'all heard this? It, it goes something like this. There, there is a single, in fact, I think a movie came out in, in, in the Czech Republic about this about a decade ago called The Most or something like that. Anyway, it, it's about this single father and his younger son. And they live a very simple life. 
but they're happy with their life. And all the father's job is, is to be the engineer of the train company. Specifically, his post is at a bridge. And this bridge operates to lift up so that boats and other vessels can go through and to drop down so that trains can come across on the track. Well, just like climbing up a ladder, eventually you get to the top and you forget, oh, that was wobbly. This should be scary, right? Well, the son's the same way. He plays around this bridge and his father allows him to play around this bridge. That's just where they live. Well, one day, the, the boy looks up and he sees a train coming. And he looks <coughs> into the operating tower and he doesn't see his father. And he begins to worry because his father has instilled in him that this is an important job, that lives depend on this, that, that, that this is not a flippant thing. And so the boy runs down to the gears where the manual relay is and he moves the manual relay for the bridge to begin to come down. And as he's leaving, his foot gets caught in one of the gears and he's stuck. So he stops the bridge from going so that it won't crush him. And then he looks up and he sees his father in the tower. And the father looks and he sees his son. And just like our lives work, a million thoughts can flood us in a moment. It is an incredible thing that God has given us in our minds. The fact that so many thoughts can hit, so many synapses can fire in a millisecond is incredible. And to me, an evidence of our own divine creation. Whatever, that's not my point. The father looks and he knows that he has moments before either his son dies and he closes that bridge or he chooses to leave it open and the train crashes while he goes to rescue his son. His moments to decide. And with groans and cries, he slams his arm into the wall and he grabs the lever and he pulls the lever and it crushes his child. And he, and he weeps and he moans as a train filled with passengers passing by, not even knowing the sacrifice that had been paid for them. That is an incredible story of sacrifice. But religious pluralism turns that incredible story of sacrifice, which is really even more beautiful. Because in that one, it was an accident by the Son. And in reality, Christ willingly got on the cross for us. He could have gotten down. It was offered to him to get down. He chose to stay up there for you and I. Even more beautiful story of sacrifice. But if you're a religious pluralist, your story can't read that way. It has to read this way. Trains coming Kids caught in the gears. Father is wondering what he's going to do. And in front of him is not one pulley, but two. And one pulley will lower the bridge onto his son and crush him. And the other pulley will lower a completely fine parallel bridge that the train would immediately divert to and his son would be fine. And he looks at those two levers and he pulls the one that crushes his son. Think about it. If religious pluralism is true and all religions are equally valid, then the death of Christ for your salvation is no more valid than the work of Muhammad or anybody else on your behalf. So for God to sit there and choose to crush his son, when he could easily have pulled a different lever, saved his son, and diverted you down a five-fold path or an eight-pronged wheel or whatever else, that God is cruel and hateful and not worth following. But that is the God that must exist if you are a religious pluralist. It must. 
because there must be parallel paths and all of them have to be equally true. That is why it is a nightmare. If all religions are true and all religions lead to God and all roads lead to the same destination, then your God and my God, the Christian God, is exceedingly cruel and hateful and a child abuser at best. This is why I say it is exceedingly dangerous for even traipses of this to find its way into our hearts and minds. This is why it's different than what's happening on the outside of the church. Because when I read those arguments to you, they sounded really good. This is the end conclusion. A nightmare of a God. The vast importance of this truth, that story. You you can't just say, oh good, now I've got the story. Any religious pluralist, I can talk to them and now we're in good shape. I'll tell them that horrible story that Will just told me and everything will be great. That doesn't prove Christianity. All it proves is that at most one religion can be right or that all of them can be wrong. But that is a very positive step for someone who has been willing to say that all of them are equally valid. Do you understand the statement that I just said? That's very important. This does not prove Christianity. It just proves that all religions can't be true in the same place at the same time. From that point, we go to commend Christ to them. When I was putting this together, my initial response, uh, my initial thought is, how do you respond to the religious pluralist in your life? And we would all assume that that person was a non-Christian, but I realized very quickly that there are many Christians, and you'll see I, I have it in quotes here, the word Christian. There are many Christians who are completely fine, 66% under 35, 34% over 65, some probably in this room when they walked in, definitely on a Sunday morning, definitely in our town that call themselves Christians, who have no problem saying that you can make it to heaven without Christ. He's not the only way. There are other options for you. And so I think it's important that you understand as a Christian what religious pluralism does. So that if somebody says, of course I believe in Christ, but if somebody else wants to believe something else, that's fine too. Here's what you explain to them. The problem is it chops Scripture up. The problem is it creates a collage and it calls it God. The problem is religious pluralism chokes obedience and evangelism. Here's what I mean. Jesus himself, and and, and these, as it applies to Scripture being chopped up, Jesus himself did not allow for multiple paths to God. If you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you need to know that the one that you follow did not hold that belief. I've already read John 14, 6. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16. If you're going to say that there's another way, then you have to pick and choose which verses you're going to buy into, and you better go ahead and leave this one out first. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Tear that one out and toss it first. If you're, if you're going to buy into religious pluralism and begin chopping it up. Not only that, you've got to leave out some of your favorite Bible stories. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Can we all agree that when he asks them if their God is busy using the porta potty, that's not exactly tolerant? Can we all agree that that is a little narrow-minded when Elijah says, maybe if you bled more, your God would listen to you? 
Maybe if you ran and screamed louder, your God would... Perhaps he's taking a nap. Certainly you can rouse him. Might I add... Might I advance that that is far more intolerant than anything you or I would probably ever say. And God was cool with it. It wasn't like after this, 1 Kings 19 came around and we had this paragraph where God was like, really, you need to take it easy on those prophets of Baal. I mean, come on, show them a little bit of grace. No, God just killed them all. And he was cool with that because he's righteous and he's just and he's holy. And all of these other options are not options. Elijah sets a good example for us. It creates a collage and calls it God. There's a great movie uh, called The Truman Show, if you've never seen it, about what is truth. Excellent, excellent. Um, and, and, and there's this girl that he meets and he falls in love with. I don't want to ruin the movie for you. Basically, she, she disappears. And so he's trying to reconstruct her. This is before social media. Couldn't find her on Facebook or anything. And so... He, and it sounds really creepy now. It was loving in the movie. It's really creepy to describe. But whenever he's flipping through a magazine and he finds a particular feature that reminds him of her, he cuts it out and he, it sounds really creepy right now, okay? It's a great movie. But, but he builds this collage to the best of his ability to remember who she was and what she looked like. You see, when we buy into religious pluralism, that's ultimately what we're doing. We're saying, I want my God to deal with justice this way. And I want him to be loving this way. Not like that, but like this. And I want this, and I want, and I want. But God doesn't put up with that. Can I be bold enough to say, I don't care what you think if God has something to say about it. I care what God thinks. So Moses, after the people of Israel have created this huge idol, which is what building a collage of a God is. You're just making an idol. It's not him. It's skewed. It's warped. It's stretched. After this huge gold calf is built and and, and God relents his wrath because of Moses' intercession, Moses turns and I guess things are going well with him and God. And he says, I want to see your glory. And this is what happens. It says in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord proclaimed. God is saying, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. God told him who he was. He didn't tell God who he was. Moses didn't say, God, this is who you are. God said, Moses, this is who I am. And that's what we have. This is why Christianity is exclusive. Because we're telling you who God is. Not because of what I think, but because of what God thinks. I'm just telling you what he told me. That's what's unique about Christianity. One of the many. Finally, it chokes our obedience and evangelism. Why tell somebody about Jesus if everything else cuts it anyway? That in and of itself should have been the only thing need be said tonight. Because we know that Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples. Why would he have said that if everybody was good to go anyway? Why? But he didn't. Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is not a new problem. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, skew, stretch the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Guys, this is big. When we talk about our faith, if we treat it as though it's an option, we fall into this category. There's only one way to God. And then Paul says, you think I'm trying to seek the approval of men? I don't think so. And I let that on there because I think that's important for us. It's not our job to be approved by men. It's our job to be approved by God. Romans 10. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction. All right, you, you want a non-exclusive God? How about this? There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. I'm good with that. It, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is not exclusive. Everyone means everyone. Doesn't matter what tribe, tongue, or nation you come from. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The exclusivity comes in. What name are you calling on? And then it pushes us into evangelism and says, how, they're gonna, how are they going to call on the one in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How good and beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But not all have obeyed the gospel. This is Penn and Teller. Y'all familiar with them? Uh, they're, they're magicians, illusionists, whichever version is. I, can't, I always get it mixed up. I know that people have a conviction about that. Magic isn't real. They're an illusionist. I think is how it goes. All right. I'm not being light with that. I just can't remember. Penn has a blog. If y'all were in high school, I would play it for you. But a video seems maybe a little too cutting edge. So I'm going to explain it to you. And what I'm going to tell you is that Penn is a devout atheist. Devout atheist. Vocal about it. And yet, after one of his shows, a man walked up to him and offered him a Bible and kindly explained the gospel to him. And, and he gets on this video blog and he says... Here's the thing. He was a good man. He was a kind man. And he approached me because he was concerned with me. This is a devout atheist speaking. He said, I've never understood people who said you should keep your faith to yourself. He uses the term proselytize. We typically use the term evangelize. He said, to me, anyone who believes something without a shadow of a doubt and doesn't proselytize must sincerely hate me. This is coming from an atheist. And he says, how much do you have to hate me not to tell me about Christ? An atheist. If I believe that a truck is bearing down on you and you tell me there is no truck, there's a point in which I tackle you, he says. An atheist has a better perspective on truly understanding the gospel than many people who claim Christ. <clears throat> Finally. Finally. I want to end with this. And this is where most of our conversation resides. Outside of the walls of a church. For those of us who are faithful Christians hoping to point people to Christ. I just give you a couple of things that I would recommend in talking to somebody who is bought into religious pluralism. I think the very first thing, and these are two different ways. But I think it's fair to gently say, if God exists, then. And, and, and go with the conversation that way. You don't believe God exists. And I understand that. 
But if God does exist, if you happen to be wrong, are you willing to discuss what the ramifications of that would be? And if they say, well, it's not that God doesn't exist, it's that one way doesn't exist, then I would say, if only one way does exist, does that affect how you would live your life? If God truly exists, and if there is really only one way to him, wouldn't you be interested in hearing what I believe is the truth? And guys, this is where I'm not trying to come up with some eloquent argument. I'm not trying to come up with some great analogy because an analogy is an analogy and truth is truth. But I think there should be a heart behind our conversations with people who don't know Christ. There was a period where we didn't know Christ either. There was a period where our rebellion was in full swing and we wanted nothing to do with it. And yet somebody whether it be God through a person or through some other means, showed us an incredible amount of grace and love to teach us the truth of the gospel. And then I think these three things are huge. Does truth really matter? When it comes down to it, does truth exist and does it really matter? And, and this is pretty simple. I, I'll just walk you through it. If somebody says there's no one way or none of us can really know what is true, I would simply say... Do you believe that there is truth in anything? Well, no, it's all relative. Do you believe it's true that we should not murder? Do you believe it's true that we should not rape? Do you believe it's true? And immediately anybody with a conscience is going to say yes. That's only step one. But at least they've admitted that there is truth. Then you have to carry them to can truth be known? Well, okay, so truth exists, but you can't really know it. You can't. You can't really have the, the market cornered on knowing it. And then we just we talked about this already. Is it true? Can we know that if you don't eat, you're going to shrivel and die? Yeah. Well, it hadn't happened yet, but we can know it. I've never been to New Zealand. I know it's there. And I'm not being flippant. I'm just saying we can know that things are true. And then this is the big one. Truth doesn't contradict. When you hold up that bumper sticker or whatever your philosophy is, and you say to each his own, that is not and cannot be true. Because for this religion to be true, this one must be false. For this philosophy to hold water, this one must not. And then finally, I would encourage you with this. Commend Christ. One of the greatest things that we have been given, even though I think we really only highlight it maybe a couple of times in our life, is the fact that we have a testimony to share of God's goodness in our own life. I think when we commend Christ to people and we say, here's who I am and here's who I was and here's what Christ did, there's power in that. Because I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm just trying to share my life with you because I care about you. I, I think when we commend Christ, we are people of prayer who aren't so concerned that before this conversation ends, you get on my side but are willing to say, let's talk about this. Let, let me, let's pray about this. Let's meet again. Let's, let's be willing to, to enter into discourse, even if this takes time. And then finally, I think as we commend Christ, we need to model the very truth that we know, but many times we don't live out. The heart of a person changing is nothing that you or I are responsible for. The heart 
of, of a, the, the reality of a dead heart coming to life has nothing to do with you or I other than the fact that we are the tool in the hand of the craftsman. Nobody credits the hammer for the building of a house. Nobody credits the mop for the cleanliness. They credit the hand that moved it, and yet the mop and the hammer are essential. And that is how God has built his economy, that his people would be essential in leading people to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are truth, that in you there is no shadow or shifting of light, that even though now we see in a mirror dimly, one day we'll see face to face. And Father, even though now we see in a mirror dimly, you have seen fit, even in our own dimness, to reveal yourself to us in such a way that we can know what truth is, that we can respond to truth, that we can hold truth and that we can share truth. I pray that we would not be cowards. pray that we would not be flippant. I pray, Father, that we would not be weak-willed, thin Christians, but that we would be bold with a message that comes with the authority of the God who spoke it. Father, that that would propel us as we are surrounded by people who have bought into the same lie that we hear whispered in the beginning of Genesis, echoing through the Old Testament into the New, sitting in our classrooms, in our cubicles, in our homes, around our tables at Thanksgiving, that this deceitful, tricky little lie would not have safe place around us who have been revealed the truth of Christ. Make us that bold. Make us those people. Not that we would be great, but that you would receive glory, that people would be saved from their sin, and that your kingdom would come in its fullness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.